Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. To the mansion on the hill, this is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness, of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody, this is Terry from Texas, and because I'm from Texas, and this is going to air the middle of the week where Texas independence was declared from Mexico and the Battle of the Alamo happened, I thought I would do a little story on the Texas Revolution. It's not going to be necessarily weird or odd or scary, but it may give us something to think about. After all, that's what I'm here for, is to give us something to think about. In the years leading up to 1836, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana shifted away from being a well-intentioned presidente to becoming a bloodthirsty tyrant. His self-styled nickname, the Napoleon of the West, instead of being awe-inspiring, showed his desire that no one oppose him or his will for Mexico. Several uprisings from those people who had moved into the Mexican territory were put down in a most bloody manner. But still, there were those who felt that Santa Ana was wrong and refused to go hat in hand, eyes downcast, to Mexico City to beg to be heard, and they thundered for rebellion. But let's back up a little bit. The Texas Revolution, the original one, began not in 1835, as was taught to us in Texas in the public schools by the learned teachers we had, but it began in 1812. That was the year that the Republican Army of the North swept across the Sabine River and later captured Nacogdoches, Goliad, and San Antonio from the Royalist government of Spain before declaring independence on April 6th, 1813. When we celebrate Texas Independence Day, maybe we should remember April 6th, 1813 as a good attempt, as well as we remember March 2nd, 1836 as the one that took. The Republican Army of the North was a ragtag band of Mexicans, Tejanos, Anglos, and American Indians, commanded by Jose Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara, a native of the Rio Grande town of Rivia, and Augustus McGee, a former U.S. Army lieutenant. Gutierrez was a patriot. McGee was an adventurer. Their invasion of Texas from the no-man's land along the Louisiana border was the first step in a grander plan to free all of Mexico from the hated Spanish government. It resulted in the short-lived Green Flag Republic of Texas, so-called because of the color of its flag. That's right, 
more than six flags have actually flown over Texas. In fact, the correct number is closer to nine and possibly more. There's also a red and white banner that James Long and his filibusters, now the filibusters used in this term are armed men who step in to fight other people's battles to to go to war for someone else. Not the long-winded speeches in Congress trying to halt acting on a certain bill. Although those do happen. James Long and his filibusters flew a red and white banner when they occupied the Presidio La Bahia at Goliad in 1821 and a flag with a red severed arm and a bloody sword that flew over that fortress a few months before the Texas Declaration of Independence, the one in 1836, that is. When it came to flags, the Texas Revolution, having so many different groups with almost as many political viewpoints and many different points of origin, looked much like the fields of battle of olden days, each group under its own banner. The bloodiest battle ever fought on Texas soil is one that I personally had never heard of. Waged near the Medina River south of San Antonio, the Battle of Medina spelled the end of Gutierrez and McGee's Green Flag Republic, but it also set the stage for Anglo-American settlement in the coming decade. It was not the end, it was actually the beginning, said a 61-year-old realtor from Austin named Dan Ariano. Short and compact, with silver hair brushed back and a neatly trimmed silver mustache, Ariano spent his free time researching and writing about the Spanish and Mexican colonial history of Texas and looking for the true side of the battle. He had a reason. His great-great-great-great-grandfather, Francisco Ariano, fought there on the side of the Royalists. Sergeant Ariano was a Tlaxcalan Indian from the village of Alamo de Paris who had been conscripted into the Royalist Army. Most of the Spanish soldiers were Indians, Ariano said, put a uniform on them, and they became Mexican. No true location of the end of this revolt can be proven, though. The Siege of Bear was an early campaign of the Texas Revolution in which a volunteer Texian army defeated Mexican forces at San Antonio de Bejar. Texians had become disillusioned with the Mexican government as President and General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana's tenure became increasingly dictatorial. Santa Ana had sent his brother-in-law, General Martin Perfecto de Cos, to Bayar with reinforcements. On October 13th, Stephen F. Austin led his forces towards Bayar to confront the Mexican troops. The Texians initiated a siege of the city. The siege of Bayer was the longest Texian campaign of the Texas Revolution, and it was the only major Texian success other than San Jacinto. Of the 780 Texians who had participated in some way in the battle, between 30 and 35 were wounded, with five or six killed. Historian Stephen Hardin places the Texian casualties slightly lower, though, with four killed and 14 wounded. The losses were spread evenly amongst Texas residents and newcomers from the United States. 
The Battle of the Alamo, which was begun on February 23rd and lasted until the early morning hours of March 6th, 1836, was a pivotal event in the Texas Revolution following a 13-day siege. Mexican troops under President General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana reclaimed the Alamo mission near San Antonio de Bejar, killing the Texian and immigrant occupiers. Santa Ana's cruelty during the battle inspired many Texians, both legal Texas settlers and illegal immigrants from the United States, to join the Texian army. About 100 Texians were then garrisoned at the Alamo after the Siege of Bayer. The Texian force grew slightly with the arrival of reinforcements led by eventual Alamo co-commanders James Bowie and William Barrett Travis. On February 23rd, approximately 1,500 Mexicans marched into San Antonio de Bejar as the first step in a campaign to retake Texas. For the next 10 days, the two armies engaged in several skirmishes with minimal casualties. Aware that his garrison could not withstand an attack by such a large force, Travis wrote multiple letters pleading for more men and supplies from Texas and from the United States. But the Texians were reinforced by fewer than 100 men because the United States had a treaty with Mexico and supplying men and weapons would have been an overt act of war. The Tennessean, David Crockett, and please notice I did not call him Davy Crockett. David Crockett traveled with 30 well-armed men to Jackson, Tennessee, where he gave a speech from the steps of the Madison County Courthouse and then they arrived in Little Rock, Arkansas on November 12, 1835. The local newspapers reported that hundreds of people swarmed into town to get a look at Crockett, and a group of leading citizens put on a dinner in his honor that night at the Jeffries Hotel. Crockett spoke mainly to the subject of Texan independence, as well as to Washington politics. Crockett arrived in Nacogdoches, Texas in early January of 1836. On January 14th, he and 65 other men signed an oath before Judge John Forbes to the Provisional Government of Texas for six months. I have taken the oath of government and have enrolled my name as a volunteer and will set out for the Rio Grande in a few days with the volunteers from the United States. Each man was promised about 4,600 acres of land as payment. On February 6th, he and five other men rode into San Antonio de Bejar and camped just outside the town. Crockett arrived at the Alamo Mission in San Antonio on February 8th. A Mexican army arrived on February 23rd led by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, surprising the men garrisoned in the Alamo and the Mexican soldiers immediately initiated a siege. Santa Ana ordered his artillery to keep up a near-constant bombardment. The guns were moved closer to the Alamo each day, increasing their effectiveness. Now, back in the, those times, the reason there were so many cannons used to take down a fort is in order to take down a fort. Knock as many holes in the wall as you can, that way your men can get through. On February 25th, two to three hundred Mexican soldiers crossed the San Antonio River and took cover in abandoned shacks approximately 90 
to 100 yards from the Alamo walls. The soldiers intended to use the huts as cover to establish another artillery position, although many Texians assumed that they actually were launching an assault on the fort. Several men volunteered to burn the huts. To provide cover, the Alamo cannons fired grape shot at the Mexican soldiers, and Crockett and his men fired rifles, while other defenders reloaded extra weapons for them to use in maintaining a steady fire. The battle was over in 90 minutes, and the Mexican soldiers retreated. There were limited stores of powder and shot inside the Alamo, and Alamo commander William Barrett Travis ordered the artillery to stop returning fire on February 26th so as to conserve precious ammunition. Crockett and his men were encouraged to keep shooting as they were unusually effective. The Mexicans kept up artillery fire, constantly harassing the Alamo defenders. Then, on the evening of March 5th, the firing stopped. The night was peaceful and many of the men in the Alamo had their first restful night's sleep. But all was not well. Santa Ana had planned a massive attack on the north wall of the Alamo, where thick walls would work against the pitiful few defenders there. The walls were such that the riflemen behind them had to expose themselves to the advancing soldados, thus being able to get shot themselves. In the early morning hours of March 6th, the Mexican army advanced on the Alamo. William Travis died at the North Wall early on. After repelling two attacks, the Texians were unable to fend off a third. As Mexican soldiers scaled the walls, most of the Texian fighters withdrew into interior buildings. Occupiers unable to reach these points were slain by the Mexican cavalry as they attempted to escape. Between five and seven Texians may have surrendered. If so, they were quickly executed. Most eyewitnesses' accounts reported between 182 and 257 Texians died, while most historians of the Alamo agree that around 600 Mexicans were killed or wounded. Several non-combatants were sent to Gonzales to spread word of the Texian defeat. The news sparked both a strong rush to join the Texian army and a panic, known as the runaway scrape, in which the Texian army, most settlers, and the new, self-proclaimed but officially unrecognized Republic of Texas government fled eastward toward the United States ahead of the advancing Mexican army. In 19th century Texas, the Alamo complex gradually became known as a battle site rather than a former mission. The Texas legislature purchased the land and buildings in the early part of the 20th century and designated the Alamo Chapel as an official Texas state shrine. The Alamo has been the subject of numerous nonfiction works beginning in 1843. Most Americans, however, are more familiar with the myths and legends spread by many of the movie and television adaptations, including, but not limited to, the 1950s Disney miniseries Davy Crockett and John Wayne's 1960 film The Alamo. 
The defenders of the Alamo, white and Hispanic alike, were piled up and their bodies were burned in several pyres. The handsome Presidio La Bahia on the south banks of the San Antonio River isn't just the soul of the Texas Revolution. It's probably the most fought-over site in Texas. Though the old fortress has been reconstructed, it is more imposing than the Alamo. This was the site of the Goliad Massacre, where Mexican soldiers, carrying out orders from Santa Ana himself, murdered James Fannin and 341 of his men on Palm Sunday, 1836. The atrocity furnished the second half of the battle cry used at San Jacinto. Remember the Alamo. Remember Goliad. The fort was the guardian of the Texas coast. Newton Warcheka, the director of the Presidio, said, During the Revolution, it cut off the supply of goods from Copano Bay to Mexican troops in San Antonio. Fannin made a number of strategic mistakes that led to the massacre, but perhaps the worst was not abandoning the Presidio sooner. Sam Houston had ordered Fannin to join him near the present-day town of Columbus, yet Fannin hesitated until Mexican troops were on the outskirts of Goliad. As the Texan soldiers finally withdrew and headed for the protective timbers of Calido Creek on the road to Victoria, they were cut off by the Mexican cavalry and forced to defend themselves in an open field. The Battle of Calido Creek began on March 19th, oddly enough, 13 days after the fall of the Alamo, which had survived for 13 days before it fell, and lasted until the following morning, with both sides taking heavy fire. A cold rain blew in overnight, making Fannin's position even more perilous. His men erected barricades out of carts and dead animals, but at dawn, the Texans realized that the Mexicans had brought up reinforcements. Fannin knew that another stand would be futile. After consulting with his officers, he decided to seek an honorable surrender. Prisoners were herded back to Goliad, their spirits buoyed by the belief that they were prisoners of war and would eventually be returned to the United States. Fannin hoped that would be the case, but he understood that they were at the mercy of Santa Ana, who had issued a no-quarter policy toward the rebels. The chapel is the only part of the original Presidio still standing. This is where they kept the men for the first two or three days, Warchaca said. They still had no idea of their fate. Early on the morning of Palm Sunday, after a week of captivity, those who could walk were separated into three groups and told conflicting stories about their destinations. They marched them through this sally port, one group at a time, Warcheka said. One group was taken down the San Antonio Road, another to the Victoria Road, and a third to the Capano Road. When they had gone about a half a mile, the Mexican soldiers formed a line and opened fire at close range. Some of the Texans ran, and a few escaped by diving into the San Antonio River. The wife of a Mexican officer, known to history as the Angel of Goliad, saved a number of lives by pleading with another officer to spare whomever he could. After the killings, the soldiers returned to the fort and executed the wounded. 
Fanon himself was the last to die. He was blindfolded and seated in a chair next to a gate. He made three requests, that he not be shot in the face, that his possessions be given to his family, and that he receive a Christian burial. Soldiers shot him in the face, took his goods, and dumped his body with all the others. There are no markers at the three locations where the soldiers were killed. We think we know where they are, Warcheka said, but they're all on private property now. The assumed site of the Kalido Creek Battlefield is now the Fannin Battleground State Historic Site off Texas Highway 59. The triumph of Santa Ana's army at the Battle of Kalido Creek and the deadly efficiency with which the Mexican dictator's wishes were carried out at Goliad led him to believe he really was the Napoleon of the West, a military genius on the cusp of quelling an annoying little rebellion. At the Battle of San Jacinto, he learned how wrong he was. Santa Ana led 700 Mexican troops toward Harrisburg to capture officials from the Texas government. But when he arrived, he found that everyone had fled to Galveston. So he burned the town and headed toward Lynchburg. Santa Ana considered Houston a rival of no consequence. Sam Houston was the general of the Texan army at the time, and he was about to find out how wrong he was about that, too. Sam Houston, on the other hand, seemed destined to lead a rebellion. He was a man of intrigue and daring. He was intemperate, he was grave, and absorbed in his own vision of manifest destiny. He had resigned under a cloud of scandal as the governor of Tennessee, lived for years with the Cherokee, who knew him as Big Drunk, and come to Texas, like other rowdies and misfits, seeking redemption. But by San Jacinto, his troops were close to mutiny. Many of them thought Houston was gutless, more interested in retreating than fighting. San Jacinto was not so much a battle that Houston won, but rather one that Santa Ana just squandered. Houston's fateful crossroads was an intersection near the town of Hempstead. The north road led to Nacogdoches and safety, the south road to Harrisburg and the enemy. As they approached the intersection, men began shouting, To the right, boys! To the right! The small band of musicians leading the column made the turn without waiting for Houston's orders. Old Sam knew that if he took the north road, he would take it alone. The Mexicans never saw the Texans coming. Santa Ana had expected Houston to attack on the evening of April 20th, so he kept his troops up all night, building barricades and breastworks. He then prepared for an attack at dawn, but that didn't happen either. At about 9 o'clock in the morning on April 21st, Mexican reinforcements arrived, hungry and exhausted. As shadows began to fall across the field late in the afternoon, Santa Ana gave an order to stand down. The men collapsed on their blankets. The battle began about 4.30 with a deadly shower from the twin sisters, a pair of cannons donated to the rebel cause by the people of Cincinnati. At the same time, Mirabeau Lamar's horsemen charged on the Mexicans' left flank, and a four-piece band broke into its version of Will you come to the bower? 
Houston, Maradona's great stallion, Saracen, led rebel infantrymen as they swarmed the camp, mowing down the Mexicans before they could reach their weapons. Santa Ana had made the mistake of positioning his troops with their backs to the bayou, and there was no retreat. The battle lasted just 18 minutes, though the killing went on for hours. With memories of the Alamo and Goliad still searing, the bloodthirsty rebels committed atrocities every bit as despicable as the Mexicans had. Mexicans fleeing into the woods were hunted down and slaughtered. Some were scalped. Others ran into a shallow pond called Peggy Lake. Rebel soldiers pursued and stood at the edge of the water, shooting them down. Santa Ana was captured next day. In some stories, he donned the uniform of a lowly soldado, but was found out when his fellow prisoners started saluting him and otherwise recognizing him. In another tale, Santa Ana had been otherwise engaged with a female during the attack and tried to escape by slipping into one of his dalliance's dresses. It didn't work. The Texas War for Independence was over. For now. In the 1840s, Santa Ana would get his dander up and try to retake Texas again. Try being the operative word. He would fail again. After the war, those who could prove they had participated in the Siege of Behar were granted 320 acres of land. Eventually, 504 claims were certified. At least 79 of the Texians who participated later died at the Battle of the Alamo or the Goliad Massacre, and 90 participated in the final battle of the Texas Revolution at San Jacinto. March 2nd is called Texas Independence Day. March 6th is commemorated as the fall of the Alamo, and April 21st is known as San Jacinto Day. But in all the commemorations and remembrances, what of the hallowed ground purchased with the blood of patriots to a cause? Do the dead still linger in those places? I believe they do. The ghosts of the Alamo and indeed of San Antonio are not only revenants from the Texas War for Independence, but from various times in the rich history of San Antonio. There are shades of local Indians, of early Spanish settlers, of children. Yes, there are the spirits of the defenders of the Alamo, but there are many more of people of times since 1836. We live, work, walk, and sometimes party upon the land bought by the most extreme payment. We must remember them and the many others who've died here. We must honor them. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. On Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. 
Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android. You can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. credit card bill.